Welcome to the 15th episode of the Statistically Insignificant Podcast, a show co-hosted by Eric Drysdale and Jared Hunter. We aim to have interesting conversations with people we know in a wide range of fields, including the arts, humanities, and business. In today's episode, we are joined by Rachel McMullen. Rachel worked as an archaeologist for many years on digs in Canada, Jordan, and Scotland. She has her own YouTube channel, Rachel Amin, and now works as a digital marketing executive, where she bridges the gap between social media and archaeology. Rachel, thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to do this. It's going to be fun, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So, Rachel, how we usually start out the show is, could you just give us a brief description of what you've done and what you do and how you've gotten to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So my archaeological journey, it started uh, at university. So I'm Canadian and I uh, studied Near Eastern and classical archaeology for my undergraduate degree at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo. And that's that focused on ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, Greece, and Rome, and and their histories. I I took broadly classes in quite a few different civilizations, like I did some stuff on Russian history as well, and kind of broader medieval um, stuff. But my focus was really like the Near East, particularly. I always wanted, like I loved ancient Egypt since I was a kid. And so that's where my main interest lay. Once I graduated, I moved to the UK to pursue a master's in human osteoarchaeology, which is the study of like human skeletal remains at the University of Edinburgh. And I kind of decided to do that because while I was studying, I found, you know, ancient Egypt, which was my original loved, but I, I loved learning about all different types of cultures and, and civilizations throughout the world. So I thought, you know, everyone dies and most people leave remains behind of some sort. So to have a degree in osteoarchaeology would maybe give me the flexibility of being able to like dig or work kind of anywhere in the world. So that uh, master's degree took a year. And then after I finished that, I decided to make a go of working in the UK commercial archaeology sector. I actually, this is a bit out of order, but I had taken a year off between my undergraduate and my master's where I had worked in Canadian archaeology in Ontario. And it just wasn't really for me. I did work during the winter, which is like, yeah, it's a grueling process. I think that kind of turned me off to it a bit. And so I thought, oh, well, I'm in the UK. I might as well try and make a go of it over here. And so I ended up working the UK commercial, or I guess sometimes it's called like the professional or private sector for a few years doing field work um, throughout the whole country. And then as happens to many archaeologists, as I approached my 30s, I was like, I can't do a lot of this traveling and this heart, this manual labor, you know, it's it's going to start really affecting my body at some point. And I, I want a bit more stability in my life. Um, because when you're traveling Monday to Friday, you know, it's, it, it's a great lifestyle, but it's a lifestyle that for a lot of people has like a time limit. So I ended up transitioning into a job at an archaeological company where I was doing training of other people and then also a little bit of marketing because I had started a YouTube channel and they were like, oh my God, she knows how to use social media. Let's like our marketing person just left. She can help us with this. I was working, I worked there for a few years and then I had transitioned within the company from, I left their training team and was focusing solely on marketing because I just found that more interesting um, and more aligned with the stuff that I felt I was good at. And they got bought by a larger consultancy firm and the marketing department within that consultancy firm essentially ended up offering me a job to work with them part-time and then part-time for the company that I was originally working for. And then they also ended up offering me the chance to progress, whereas my job at the archaeology company was just kind of envisioned to stay as is. And as I was ambitious, I I, I kind of wanted to go for the next level. So I ended up fully leaving archaeology last year. And now I completely uh, work within a consultancy uh, firm doing marketing and communication stuff with them. So yeah, it's kind of a zigzaggy path. But as I, I've, as I find out when I talk to many people, they usually are. Nothing's ever A to B very often. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It was kind of strikingly familiar to like stories I've heard a lot in um, the theater field, even where people had this passion about working in this kind of technical thing, but it's fairly physically demanding. As you start to get further in your career, you realize it's not really necessarily sustainable. Exactly what sustainable. <laughs> yeah. That's a good word for it. Yeah. 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 So, but I kind of wanted to dig into a little bit more 
at like the beginning and I was just wondering like what was one of the biggest motivators I guess for you to start off into into archaeology was it really just a passion for the the field well I mean if if we're talking about like university and deciding what to study there it was very much like a what am I good at (laughs) I have always struggled with a lot of like maths and science you know those were not my strong subjects in school my strongest subjects were always history and English and I always had a real big connection with like learning about history I took all of the possible history courses at my high school And when I came to deciding what I wanted to do at university, I was looking at a couple different programs, all revolving around history in some way. And then I went to the Laurier, like open day for prospective students. And uh, one of the people that I spoke to was talking about how their program had a requirement for students to do a six week dig as a part of their, um, like as a credit for university. It wasn't something that like you could do if you wanted to, you had to do a foundation in field work to see what it was like. And I thought that that was really interesting because they're the one of the ones that they would offer, they were offering that I was like, oh, I definitely want to do that was in the kingdom of Jordan in the Middle East. And I thought that that would be a really crazy experience. And it was like, I ended up going uh, three summers in a row. So almost every year of my degree, I ended up going and I, and I just loved the field work. I loved that physical aspect of it. And it was the same with going into kind of commercial archaeology instead of pursuing a PhD or academia, you know, I I can write papers, but I don't find that as enjoyable as actually like being in the fields and actually like digging and participating and and looking at something and, and seeing what you've been able to do within a day was really satisfying. I think in some ways as well, there's like a real, a lot of satisfaction of being able to prove that you can do it and that you can be successful at it as well. I guess... You're talking about kind of the difference between this like academic world and then this like commercial archaeology. Mm-hmm. Can you go a little bit more into like what the differences, I guess, are there? Yeah. So like, so I think when people think of a lot of archaeologists, they think of the tweed coated professors sitting in their office, writing lots of papers, going off on these exotic digs and stuff like that. And, and that's true. But If you're a professor, you're spending the vast majority of your time teaching and writing papers. And as far as I think a sense that I have gotten more as I've grown, but something I was definitely very aware of even coming out of my undergraduate was that it's insanely competitive and you have to put a lot of work into it. And it's not to say that I'm lazy, but I think that I'm really pragmatic. So if I want, if I'm going to put a lot of work into something, I want to see like a really tangible return for myself. And I feel like that doesn't happen as much in academia because they expect so much work out of you and that you donate a lot of your time into doing. And there's so much competition that you really do have to be the absolute best at everything. And I like, personally, I felt like I wanted to be able to maybe like coast a little bit sometimes. (laughs) Whereas in, uh, and so like someone who's a professor will spend the majority of their year teaching and then they might spend a couple of weeks a summer or something like taking something like that, doing research, taking students on digs. Sometimes they'll take a sabbatical year to focus a bit more on that. But uh, it's all, for them, it's about the research and teaching, uh, whereas in the private sector, it's a lot more about digging. You know, it's not to say that the research aspect and the report writing aspect doesn't, doesn't happen, but the focus is on getting archaeological sites dug up on time for a development to happen so that, you know, things can get built or, or, or whatever. Uh, so it, it's quite a different environment. And personally, I just thought that was more of what I was interested in. And I thought that there was also like perhaps a lot more opportunities there to do a lot more different things, which, which I have found, like, if, you know, if I had a PhD, I would probably wouldn't be working in marketing. (laughs) Like that wouldn't be like a side thing that I could just go into. If you're spending the money and time on getting a PhD, you want to really pursue doing something with that, I find. So it's just a lot more flexibility with what you can do in commercial than academia. You know, if you're in academia, you want to become a professor, you want to become a, re- a postdoctoral research, you want to get a professorship, et cetera. Whereas with commercial archaeology, there's a lot more flexibility in the different things that you can transition into. I'm wondering, like, what is, so in the commercial archaeology, mm-hmm. what's like the incentive? So there's these companies, they have to 
like hire these archaeologists or like what's yeah. creating that demand? I guess. So it, it changes depending on what country you're in, but broadly speaking across a lot of different countries, you know, heritage is usually a protected thing. You know, it's like a protected species. You would think of like an animal. So say, so somewhere like the UK or so, for example, the one I use very often when I talk to people is the city that I live, which is Edinburgh in Scotland. It's the capital of Scotland. It's been a city for a very, very long time. It's been an occupied place for a very long time. There's a lot of history here. So if somebody wants to come into the middle of the city and knock down a bunch of buildings to create, to make student housing, which is often the thing that people want to build around here. They have to make sure that in doing so by law, they are not damaging anything that is a protected part of heritage. So that could be a particularly old building that's listed. That's what we call it over here. So there's different, there's, if, it, if a building is listed, depending on the grade of its listing, it has different protections for it. So you might be able to do some stuff on the inside, but you can't change the outside. If it's not listed at all, you can probably just knock it down. But then you also have to make sure that if there's something that there's nothing underneath it that you're going to disturb by putting down like piling and foundations, et cetera. And so to deal with that, they hire archaeologists to at various stages of a development. You know, you can hire consultants who will work with a company to try and establish, you know, what the lay of the land is. And so like what the likelihood is that there may, there might be something there. And then the kind of contracting side of it will be going in and actually dealing with any archaeology that is found. And then there's the post-excavation side of it, where if we do find stuff, we then will take it, we write it up into reports, we return the find, we will give the finds to a museum or an archive or whoever is claiming them. And sometimes you get to like publish books out at the end of it and stuff like that as well. And yeah, it's, it, it's different. Different countries have, have different rules for things, but that's broadly how it works in Canada as well. If you're uh, a lot of the projects that I worked on in Canada were part of like wind farm development about 10 years ago. And it was making sure that, you know, they weren't going to be building these giant turbines on top of a First Nations like settlement or burial ground or something like that without making sure that it, all of that material is properly taken care of before the development commen commences. Rachel, just a question, like a follow-up about this. I, I completely understand for like a greenfield development, like there's mm. lots of stuff that could be under the ground, bones, arrowheads, mm. et cetera, um, both in the UK and Canada. But for like something like what you were describing in downtown Edinburgh, I, I don't mm. imagine that would be the case in Toronto because I mean, the, we know what houses are uh, listed here as heritage, right? So they don't mm. need an archaeologist to say, don't knock down that house. Like they can look <laughs> that up themselves, right? I guess, yeah. is that just unique to Europe? I don't imagine that there's much historical stuff in the foundation, uh, like 20 feet under in downtown Toronto, or am I mistaken? This is, is uh, this... Oh, I think it depends. Um, one thing that I always point out to a lot of people is that, you know, humans are creatures of habit. And areas that are desirable for us to live in and the things that make them desirable don't really change a lot over time. You know, you want access to like a good source of fresh water, you know, places that are like intersections of trade routes or convenient routes for people that are traveling on or places that are close to resources that you need to be able to live. It's not something that is necessarily being consistent in terms of how strongly things have been protected. You know, a hundred years ago, they probably didn't care about putting all those foundation downs and, and, and disturbing First Nation stuff and, and whatever. Uh, but now they do, uh, and they're required to care by law. So a lot of the time, we end up doing a lot of research into saying, and to say to a company, what is the likelihood that something is there? And then even if there's, you know, say like a 50% possibility that there is something underneath that, because we found a, a site nearby here, or we have this recorded here, what'll end up happening is when they're knocking down or they're leveling a site or they're taking all the topsoil off, we end up watching the machines to see if we can see anything going on in the ground. You'd be surprised. Like humans have been around for like 10,000. Well, we've been around for longer than 10,000 years, but we've been occupying spaces and civilization has been developing for such a long history of time. There's a lot higher likelihood of remnants of human activity being present in places you wouldn't think uh, than you would think there are. I don't know if that sentence makes sense, but yeah. <laughs> Mm -hmm. oh, I, I completely, I completely see what you mean. Um, mm -hmm. And do you have a sense, uh, I, I understand it varies by country to country. Is there ever a conflict of interest if the companies are the ones paying you to like basically look into the, and like, then you find something that's going to like, you know, 
yeah. watch their development plans? How does, uh, how does that work out? Yeah, definitely that is a concern and is one of the things that I think in the UK particularly does have, has led to like a history of people not trusting archaeologists or they feel like they don't want to hire us because we're going to just put their program behind by a couple weeks, etc. And over here in the UK, the, the, the way things are run is that the developer does pay for the archaeology because it's a part of them doing the development. But uh, here, there's kind of a check and balance in terms of local, what we call local authorities. They employ archaeologists as well, who are making sure that all of the requirements are being satisfied. So when someone's submitting a development over here for, say, student housing, they have to submit that application and what they plan to do to the planning office. And so the planning office hire, they have archaeologists that will work in that, that will say, okay, well, in order for them to create this development, they need to make sure that they've satisfied these requirements for protecting the heritage. And so it is the job of those archaeologists to then check to make sure that these things are being done. That's not to say that things don't slip through the system or people attempt to dig things up. And if they find something, they just chuck it into the skip. Like I have heard stories of construction workers who just like find skeletons and they just chuck the remains of those people into a skip to try and avoid having an archaeologist coming on site. But I think one of the things that a lot of archaeologists have been trying to communicate, and I think we've had a lot of success with it over here in the past little while, is that if you build a reasonable explanation of this into your plan, uh, if you've done your correct research and you have a, a pretty good idea of what's happening beforehand, then the likelihood is that you won't end up being behind. And if you think about construction projects, them complaining about us being one small part of their uh, that's putting their construction part project behind, like the amount of things that can happen on a construction project to delay them or or to make or to cost millions of pounds in, in, in whatever like archaeology actually doesn't tend to be the number one reason why those things happen it's it's more often like logistics of getting supplies so it's quite unfair for people to think that we are the ones that are holding up all of these developments when more often than not it's not us it actually ha doesn't happen as much as people think it does i've never heard of it actually even being a, a thing in toronto development mm -hmm. um like I, I studied the canadian housing market like in seven to ten years basically from permitting to by the time people walk in the door for some of these big downtown condos, I'd never even mm -hmm. heard that archaeology was even a part of that timeline. So yeah, yeah <laughs> that makes total sense. I actually, do you know, like what's the variation across countries of what countries have the, the strictest versus like the most uh, laissez-faire approach to like requirements of when it comes to development? Do you have a sense of that? Um, so, well, I, I have a sense in some way. So I think a lot of the times it develop, it depends on how developed a country is because you obviously have to have the kind of bureaucracy and systems in place to be able to enforce this kind of stuff. So I would say that the UK is quite um, high up there in terms of the amount that they uh, endeavor to protect. Them. And that's probably why broadly also the same across Europe. Egypt can also be quite, uh, I don't want to say strict, but they have like an iron grip over heritage in their country partly because it is just such a desirable place. You know, when people think of archaeology, they think of Egypt. And I would say the U.S. and the state, uh, the U.S. and Canada also have pretty strict systems. And an interesting aspect of those systems as well is that, and this also actually applies to Australia, is that they have to negotiate a lot of stuff with the descendants of a lot of the things that they are, of the cultures that they are digging up. And that's a whole other aspect of the relationship that we don't have to necessarily deal with in the UK is um, making sure that this is being done with like due respect and deference to Indigenous peoples. Whereas, yeah, places that tend to be less developed or, or perhaps who are developing don't tend to care as much about archaeology being damaged in the process of them building up their countries because to them it's more important to industrialize and build homes and get new development going. And that's not to say that they don't care at all, but it's perhaps less important on their agenda than getting things built. Cool. It seems these kind of regulations, these requirements are pretty global, but mm -hmm. I guess it kind of begs a question for me at least, like why did you end up establishing your career in the UK then instead of making it work kind of like in places like Canada? Um, well, there's a couple different reasons. Like I, so like I said, originally I studied Near Eastern and classical archaeology. I didn't study North American archaeology. They are two very different 
things. And when I worked in Canadian archaeology, there is um, the vast majority of the sites that you're looking at are what we quote, call quote unquote, like prehistoric sites. So you're essentially looking for a lot of like stone tools and you spend your days digging one by one meter squares taking all the dirt out of that, putting it through like a sieve, and then seeing if you can find these chips of stone left over from the the process of making a stone tool. Or perhaps if you're really lucky, you actually find a stone tool. And I just found that quite monotonous. I do know that obviously there are different kinds of sites that people end up working on here. That's not the only, or sorry, in Canada, that's not the only kind of thing that they find, but I just didn't find it that interesting for me on my day to day. And the appeal to me for the UK was that there's so much more variation in the kinds of sites that you would come across. So, you know, you can have prehistoric stuff, you have Viking stuff, you have uh, Roman things, you have medieval things, you have industrial things. And so I just thought that that would be a bit more interesting for me personally. Also working in Canada, (laughs) This is kind of less about the history, but I started off work in December and I worked through to August. And um, as as anybody who lives in Canada and Southern Ontario or in Canada in general knows, our winters are quite extreme and our summers are also quite extreme. So it went from digging up sludge that was like partially frozen for 10 hours a day, like trying to mash ice cubes through a screen and like really physically demanding and cold job to then absolutely dying of heat in the humidity in the middle of summer. Like it got to the point where we were waking up at probably four or five o'clock in the morning to get on site for six o'clock. And then we could only end up working until 11 because once it hit midday with the humidity, it was so hot that we legally couldn't work. And like, it it is hard to describe how uncomfortable that was, which is really interesting because I absolutely loved working in Jordan, but over there it's a dry heat. So you don't feel like you're walking through water or you don't, you're not like sweating like absolute buckets in comparison to Canada. So uh, the UK has a much more I don't know if temperate's the right word, but their winters aren't extreme and their summers aren't extreme. So for me, I thought, well, it would maybe be a little bit easier weather-wise to deal with. But that being said, the one thing that I didn't consider was the rain. So (laughs) I don't know if I've necessarily traded it for something that was like much, much better. But at least the history is something that you were more interested in. Yeah, yeah. I worked on some... I also... Oh, actually, one thing I forgot to mention as well is that Obviously, my interest was in skeletal remains, not necessarily pottery, for example. So dealing with human remains in Canada is a lot different than over here, because more often than not, they are First Nations and First Nations do not like or usually permit people to dig up their ancestors. I think more often than not, you will try to avoid a burial site. So you might actually change the development um, rather than digging these things up. And it it is because of a long history of um, things, which uh, is was somewhat reflected in all the things that were going on with the uh, residential school discoveries last year of all the burials of children uh, on the sites of old residential schools. It's, It's a very complicated and nuanced and sensitive topic. So it's a lot less likely as an archaeologist that I would have been able to work as an osteologist in Canada, whereas in the UK, while they do have sensitivities and, you know, you can't um, just like dig something up here, it was more likely that I was going to be able to work with that kind of material on a more regular basis because it's not exactly the same uh, relationship and, and, and things going on over here. So that was also a draw for me as well. And, and I have ended up uh, digging up uh, human remains while working as an archaeologist in the UK. And Rachel, do you hold dual citizenship? Yes. It's kind of an inter- interesting and convoluted story. I am Can- I'm obviously a Canadian citizen. I came over here on a student visa, which allowed me to stay for an extra four months after my studies finished. And then I transitioned onto a youth mobility visa, which is an extra visa that Canadians and other certain Commonwealth countries can get that allows you to live and work in the UK for two years without having to necessarily have like an employer sponsoring you. You just need to be between the ages of 18 to 30. You need to have a certain amount of money in your bank account. And you, I don't think, can have like a criminal record in order to get it. So I had that for two years, during which time I was like figuring out how I was going to stay beyond that because the UK 
cannot be described as a place that particularly welcomes immigrants at this uh, point in time. And during that time, I actually ended up figuring out that I'm technically a German citizen, which I inherit through my grandparents. And the process for getting my German passport was deceptively easy. Um, (laughs) And at that point in time, the UK was still part of the EU. So I got my German passport. I officially like registered that I was living in the country as a, as a German citizen. And then when they left the EU, I was able to register under the European Union settlement scheme for any European citizens living in the UK. So uh, I've never actually had to get like a worker spousal visa, which I think is the route that a lot of people end up taking uh, when they try to come and work here. And is I'm very lucky for as well, because I know so many either American, North American archaeologists or people who came here to study and would have loved to stay. But because of the way the visa system works, they weren't able to. So they had to go home. Because you said maths instead of math. I thought you might like maybe she's just like she's full British now. She's gone. My my husband always gives me flack for calling it math instead of maths because that's what they call it over here. (laughs) great stuff i'm loving hearing about like why you've made all these decisions and everything but (laughs) i'm also interested in like what was some of the most exciting digs you've just been on do you have any big finds that you're proud of oh i have so many it's it's hard to narrow it down because i think i feel like every dig tends to be well maybe not every dig but a lot of digs do end up being quite exciting and they're a really unique experience that you have with other people. I think like the highlight digs of my life for me were definitely going to Jordan. And that wasn't just the dig that I was on. That was the experience I had, you know, every year that I went, I was going with all my friends from university. You're living in a different culture, a different climate, but it was just such a bonding experience for everyone. And we all just had like such a good time (laughs) every single time we went. So the, we worked on an iron age, Tell site in Jordan, which is basically like an artificial hill that would have had a human settlement on it. And uh, it was out in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't like in a town or anything. So we did have to have like an early morning drive to it every day. And you had to walk up this gigantic hill every morning to get there. But the thing that always stands out to me was that um, my first summer that I did it, I was working in a part of the site where they had a history of finding burials from a later period. So the site that we were working on is Iron Age. I think that's about 2,000 to 4,000 years old. I can't remember exactly how, how old of a site it is, but the burials they were finding were from like a medieval Islamic period. So maybe only like 1,000 years old, roughly. It could be very much on either side of that. So we were digging and I found this little a really beautiful piece of rock. It looked like a little triangle and it was like black on the outside and it was like turquoise on the inside. And so I put it aside in what I was calling my pretty rock collection of like rocks that I could maybe like take home as a little souvenir of the site that I was on and just kind of went ahead with what I was doing. And so my supervisor ca- uh, came around who was like our, fi- our field director for what we were doing. And I was like, oh, look at this cool rock that I found. And she was like, that's not a rock that's a piece of a glass bracelet which is something similar to what we found here before so that means there's a burial in this area so you need to like keep an eye out for for anything unusual and I was like oh okay and it, it ended up we ended up finding uh, the remains of a uh, woman a skeleton of a woman who was kind of like cut off at the waist so we only kind of found her upper torso but she had like three or four of these glass bangles still in situ, like around like her elbow and her arms. And then also when we lifted her skull out, she had like a line of beads that would have been on a necklace, like just in the ground, perfectly there. And that was an amazing like couple of days when I got to help excavate that. And like, it just really got me like the adrenaline was pumping when that was happening. So that was definitely something that I think contributed towards the rest of my later path for me. And what else are some good finds that I found? I also, so I I did my digs in Jordan and then I also was in Bulgaria. I did, I didn't dig in Bulgaria, but we had a skeletal collection during my master's that we were all analyzing that I, I wrote my master's dissertation on. That was pretty interesting. And while we were there, we were asked by the Bulgarian archaeology authority to look at 
the remains of two vampires. <laughs> so that's not a word that doesn't mean the same thing to us as it does in um, to, to, to ancient people in Bulgaria. So these are again more medieval. They were later stuff than the collection we were actually looking at, but they had found these remains while they were doing their own excavations and uh, they were bringing it to, to us because we were like the bone specialists. So uh, the one skeleton was, I believe, a man. And he had, you could see that he had these like visible deformities on his skeleton. And then the other one was, um, I think, a like a teenager or a child who was encased in like not quite cement but it was just like, we had to like chip the bones out of what they had, they had block lifted this uh, burial and they had to like basically chip the bones out. But it was really interesting to learn about the vampire thing over there, which is that anyone who is unusual. So maybe these days we might, maybe someone who's autistic or someone who's got some physical deformities, or sometimes it might be someone who's just smarter than everyone thinks that they should be. They would worry about that person rising from the dead more like a zombie than a vampire so they would bury them in these uh ways so like encased in cement so that this person couldn't rise up for the dead i also just remembered that the man that we were looking at was found with like an iron dagger through his heart and like had had a big stone on top of his head like crushing it to make sure that he didn't like rise from the dead so that's another really cool one that i really enjoyed working on i'm curious were you able to tell if like those were the wounds that were lethal or that might be beyond. Um, <laughs> I mean, finding somebody with a dagger through their ribs is pretty definitive. Right. Well, uh, I don't know. Could have happened after. It's like, oh, this guy died. We better make sure he stays dead. That, I don't yeah, know. That, yeah. <laughs> telling, telling somebody's um, mode of death is actually, is quite hard in mm. archeology. span um, because in order for something to leave an impact on your skeletal system, it either has to be something that's been present long enough to like show on your bones or to be something that happens like right at the moment of death and we can tell. So you can actually tell from bones um, if, if somebody's had an injury that's just like healed for a little bit if it's happened like immediately before or probably was the cause of their death, or if it happened after their soft tissue is dissolved and it's happened to them in the, in the ground, so to speak. A lot of archaeology is until we have time machines is always going to be guesswork, but it's an educated guess. So <laughs> I would like to get your opinion more on like, what's the current state of like archaeology? What are like the big questions that are maybe out there? Or what do you think is like the most exciting current developments? Mm. I think, well, one of the big movements that's going on in archaeology at the moment is a, a reckoning with colonialism, like Black Lives Matter and a lot of these social movements that are going on at the moment are forcing a lot of archaeological institutions and archaeologists to reflect on uh, some of the more unsavory parts of archaeology and how archaeology has been done in the past. So that's a really big thing that's currently going on. Um, there's always people who are trying to find, you know, famous sites or persons in history or, or whatever. Like there's, there's one, there's quite a few people, I'm sure all in Egypt that are trying to find Cleopatra, whether or not she's ever actually going to be uh, found and, and stuff like that's always going on. But personally, I think that stuff trying to tends to like take away from a lot of developments that we're making and technology as well. Like, you know, drones have had a huge impact in archaeology in terms of giving us a completely new perspective of how sites look like, because there's so much, there's a, a, so much more of a feasible financial alternative to like putting someone in a plane and taking photos. <laughs> That's what they used to do. So drones are making a huge impact. There's also a lot going on in the field of geophysics, which is not really, but the closest equivalent that you can think of it as is like x-raying the ground to try and see what's below before you actually start digging. And there's a lot of developments being made in different techniques that we can use to do that to try and see what's actually going on before we get there so that when we're telling clients, oh, we think something's going on here, we can actually quantify it rather than just giving a, a rough estimate if that makes sense and just to touch on that briefly like that was what was used for like the residential schools in canada right as like mm -hmm. a more local news thing okay yeah which well i think it was a lot of geophysical work was what was being done which is interesting when you think about what i was saying about how they're very sensitive about 
digging up skeletons. Mm -hmm. So geophysics is a really great way to be able to kind of do that work without risking disturbing um, something that you don't want disturbed. Yes. So speaking of um, some of the things you brought up there, Rachel, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I don't know whether they train you during school or like when you're on the digs, how you navigate like the politics of the host country, right? Like you mentioned, Egypt has an iron grip and I assume it's because mm. they want to extract the massive tourism rents. I think in Egypt, it's like, it's a bit of a reaction as well to, you know, Egypt was robbed of a lot of stuff by white people before Egyptian authorities, you know, were able to kind of take a lot more control over it. So I think there's a lot of things happening in Egypt now where the, the emphasis is on Egyptian people digging up Egyptian culture. And that's not to the exclusion of other people, but there definitely has been a skew to the other way for the majority of digs in ancient Egypt. And they're now trying to find a bit more of a balance with it. So there is always politics going on uh, with these things. I mean, in terms of how they trained us, when I went to Jordan, it was more, it was less about the dig and it was more about being aware that there are cultural differences when you're out and about socially. So like some of the stuff that we would get told would be like, you can't go out in shorts and a tank top in Jordan. That's just like, I mean, you can, but you don't, it's not advised. Uh, it's just not really the smartest thing. So p places like Jordan or Egypt, if you're coming in as an external, um, person from a different country to dig there you just have to be like that they own the things that you are digging up and it is you know in many ways a privilege that they are letting you come in and, and do this um so you you need just need to be respectful of that which is kind of yeah the thing that they they were always really big on emphasizing as well and then there's a whole other uh, section to it where you have to think about as well where fines are going to go on these kinds of digs when you're finished researching them, papers and what languages they're being published in, how that information is then getting like disseminated to the wider public. You know, if you're studying and digging in Jordan, are you only publishing your papers in English and in English speaking journals? Are you also publishing them in Arabic so like Arabic people can find out about their own heritage kind of thing? It's a constantly developing situation and especially in like the past like decade or so. And I think it's only going to be a trend going forward. There's going to be more of an emphasis on involving local communities of, and that's even true of the UK as well in, in the things that are happening essentially in their backyard. Right. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And I was also wondering like a different sort of political dimension, which is that the host countries want archaeology to reinforce an existing narrative that might be unsavory to the archaeologists themselves. Like, so for example, I, like, I'm guessing that after, if, if Russia like conquers the Ukraine, for example, they're going to want to yeah. use archaeology to validate that actually this has been in a Russian place the entire yeah. time, right? Or like in India, I know like the, um, the nationalist parties there want to like say like, oh no, India has always been a, a Hindu country and actually people left India and then populated the rest of Europe kind of thing. They want to yeah. like rewrite the kind of history. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure they're trying to use archeology span to do that. Do you, do oh, you have yeah. any thoughts on that? Um, I, I mean, that's not new. <laughs> uh, so like Hitler was like really big on uh, using archeology span and heritage to try and prove his superior superiority of the Aryans, right? That, that is something that did happen. And that was also something that for a long time happened for within archeology span where it was used to like justify colonialism. That is something that that happened. You know, these people, our ancestors were really smart and your ancestors were really dumb and therefore are, we're better than you kind of thing, which is obviously not true. And archaeology does get used as a like political tool to try and prove agendas. I would hope that most archaeologists are against that. For example, my professor uh, who ran our dig in Jordan, where we were digging is quite close to, well, you know, Jordan's not a huge country, but it is close to the, uh, to Israel. And one of the things that she always told everyone that she wanted to find is like the thing that she wanted everyone to look out for was a sign that said, welcome to, and then the town's name on it. Cause we don't actually know what it was. And she also would talk about how there was, there's a famous, um, stele, which is like a stone, um, inscription from the kingdom of Moab, which lists, which is the kingdom of that region around that time, which lists all these different towns. And there's a bunch of people that were trying to say that our site 
was one of these towns that was listed on the stele and therefore this and et cetera, and, and make all these implications about it. But she was also, she was always very resistant about it in that, you know, un, until I find a sign that says this is this town, you, you cannot make that interpretation. And I think that that's one thing to really keep in mind with archaeology is that our hypothesis our hypothesis. We need to be able to prove them via the scientific method and not just make uh, conclusions about these things. And it's also like, it's just, it's very fluid. Like history is never fixed. There's always things that are changing about what our interpretations were 40 years ago versus what they are now. And, and I think the thing that we're constantly learning is how diverse things used to be. I think a lot of the time, like when growing up, you get taught that this belonged to this culture and this belonged to this culture and, and whatever. Whereas like, there's a lot more mixing than people realize there were. And just because we think of it as this way doesn't mean that that's actually how it was. That's us putting our own modern day thinking onto an ancient culture that's a couple thousand years removed from ours. So yeah, so the idea that, yeah, Russia is trying to justify that Kiev Kiev, Kiev is the city that Russia is, is that, that Russia is basing, I think, a lot of this around because it was a, a huge, powerful place in uh, history, especially in the medieval era. But the thing that you just learn is that this this idea of this thing belongs to me because we have a shared history is just kind of bullshit. So <laughs> a lot of the time, because like things change so often throughout history. Yeah, that kind of thinking I don't personally really agree with. <laughs> have you found that that ever impacted some of the digs that you were on where people thought of archaeology in a poor light because of maybe some of the past instances? I think people tend to get like protective or defensive sometimes of these things. It's kind of hard to say, like archaeology can often be used in political spheres to justify certain things or not. For example, uh, this isn't quite the same, but like Stonehenge, they're, they're currently proposing to put a tunnel right beside it. It's pissed off a lot of people. And there's a lot of argument in the archaeological community about whether this should be done because it's a tunnel. So it will disturb archaeological remains. It is a political thing, etc. And as a result, you know, people do sometimes look at archaeologists uh, in a negative light because they're coming to do something that people fundamentally disagree with happening, which is always an interesting thing to have to deal with, especially in the age of social media, uh, where people think that they know more than someone who's uh, studied something or trained in it for a very, very long time. <laughs> and they've just looked at it on the internet. So yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of social media, Rachel, can you talk a little bit about your YouTube channel? Like I've, I was watching some videos before this. They're, <laughs> they're very good and, and they go back a long time. So maybe yeah. you could talk about why you started and like actually the process, like how do you're like, oh, okay, I want to make this a video. Like what's that mm. process? Like what equipment do you need? And, and like, mm. do you ever go back and watch your videos? Because you can watch like one, why I left archaeology and then like seven years before that, why I got into archaeology. Yeah, so, yeah. So it's a fossilized record of your own life, actually. I know. It's it's kind of, it, yeah, it's, it's weird to think about in that way. Um, I started my YouTube channel because I was bored, uh, which is not really the greatest uh, answer for that. But I had, it was back in 2016 and I was working on temporary contracts. So in the UK, when you start out working as an archaeologist, you get hired for the duration of a project. So it's like we have six weeks and then we might have one more week but then we don't need you anymore. So you have to go work somewhere else, et cetera. So it's not really great for job stability. And you can end up a lot of the time with a, uh, a couple, so some, some unexpected free time. And that had happened to me. And I'd been watching a lot of YouTube and I noticed that there was a lot of content about archaeological sites or archaeological find, but there wasn't a lot about archaeologists as people. And one of the things that you always come across when you tell people that you're an archaeologist is like, oh my God, I didn't know you could do that as a job. Oh, I would have loved to do that. That was my dream job when I was a kid, blah, 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 blah. So my thinking with starting my channel was to kind of pull back that veil and talk a bit more about what archaeology is like as a career and to some extent like a lifestyle and to try and educate people more about the fact that it is available as a career, but also what that career is like so that people aren't entering it with this romanticized idea that they're going to be, you know, walking around with like a pistol and a whip like raiding tombs and getting all this treasure kind of thing. So like being a bit more realistic about what the life is like. 
And at the beginning, I started with just a camcorder that I had. And I think I tried to use Windows Movie Maker for my editing, but very quickly discovered that that was not going to happen. And I was too cheap. Uh, and I still am too cheap to pay for Adobe Premiere Pro, which is like the standard video editing software that everyone uses if you're serious about video editing, as far as I'm aware. So I actually ended up finding like a freeware version of a video editor called Lightworks and learned how to use that. You know, my videos aren't particularly professionally made. You know, I have lots of cuts because I say, um, all the time when I'm making my videos, or if I say something wrong and then I, I want to re-say it. And I, I've never really done much with changing lighting or sorry, colorizing things or, or kind of really fine details like that. A couple of years ago, I splurged and bought myself a new camera that was a much higher quality than my cam than my camcorder. I also, I think one of the first things I ever bought for my channel was a tripod. Because when I started off, it was just my camcorder on top of some books. And I placed it in front of a window because so that I would have the natural lighting. Uh, so I used natural light for a long time in my videos. And I only recently started investing in like a ring light so that I could have better lighting. Because in Scotland, it meant that I had a very short window in wintertime to film my videos because it's only bright from like eight o'clock in the morning to like three o'clock in the afternoon sometimes. So you have to make sure that you're getting it in. And obviously you peak light is around midday. And then what else have I, what else have I done? Um, when I, I always usually write a bit of a script. So when I started out, that was more, I kind of jotted down my ideas for what different videos I think people would be interested in. And then I would write down bullet points that I wanted to talk about in each video. And then I would kind of riff off of each bullet point and then I could cut it together at the end. Uh, but now I've gotten to the point where I actually do write myself like a script to, fo to, to follow. So it helps me like organize a lot better my thoughts. And depending on the content of a video, I might do a little bit more research and spend a lot more time developing the video, or sometimes I might have a pretty concrete idea of what I want to say. And then, I, so it doesn't take me as long to prepare. What else? Uh, had to learn, well, making my thumbnails, I make them in PowerPoint because <laughs> I don't have like a really sophisticated image editor. It's, I just made a PowerPoint uh, file where the, the dimensions match the YouTube thumbnail. So then I just do all of my, my editing for that in there. Cause I can put text on it and other images, et cetera. It's something that I've done in peaks and flows. And yeah, one of the things you always want to do with YouTube is try and do it on a regular basis. I've never been very good at that because I, I have a life outside of my YouTube channel and it does take a significant amount of effort to get a good video out. And in terms of what kind of content I do. I just kind of, I just sometimes have a brainstorm about what I think people will be interested based on which videos have performed well, or perhaps someone in my contacts, uh, my comment section has asked me a specific question then. I, and I think, oh, that's something that I've had other people ask me or that I think would be an interesting uh, topic to talk about. And then I, I'll, I'll do a video on that. So it's quite fluid in, in how I run it. <laughs> And do you have a Patreon um, account or how do you get money for this? No, I, um, maybe I should do a Patreon, but um, I, when I started out, I think it took me about a year to get money from YouTube ads. And then I had that for a couple months and then Adpocalypse happened where they significantly changed the parameters for qualifying to get money from ads. So it was like before, I think it was like, you needed like a hundred or a thousand subscribers and that was it. And then they changed it to, you need a thousand subscribers and 4,000 watch hours within the past 12 months. So it's the watch hours is the one that gets you out because it means that you have to be putting out content regularly. People have to be watching it from beginning to end. That's the difficult, that's the most difficult thing is people often watch just for the first couple minutes and then they get bored and then they just switch to the next video. So you have to be engaging enough. You either have to have tons of views for a shorter video, or you have to have a dedicated audience that is really going to stick out watching a longer video. Because the whole idea with YouTube is they want people to stay on the platform for as long as possible. So it's, it can be really difficult sometimes to find that sweet spot where you're getting enough people engaging with your content. So it took me quite a while. I only just started making money off of ads again in the past like year and a half. Uh, and I don't make enough money to even consider doing it full-time or part-time. And that's partly because, I mean, there are things that I could do. I'm aware 
to increase the amount of people watching my videos, like presenting in a tank top that I'm just like not willing to do. And I, 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 I think, and with a Patreon as well, maybe if I was a student or I had more free time on my hands to really dedicate to doing the video content, I would consider doing a Patreon. But at the moment, my biggest kind of hurdle is like, I have a nine to five job. I have a social life. And in order to do something like a Patreon, you really have to be dedicated to rewarding those people that are, that are funding you. And I just haven't really had the courage to take that next step to really dedicate that amount of time to doing it because it would involve either like quitting my job, reducing my hours at my job, or basically giving up all my free time. And I like my free time. So (laughs) yeah, Yeah. fair enough. Actually, I kind of have a trivial question because I'm Mm -hmm. also a fairly avid consumer of YouTube videos. Do you know like exactly what parts of the video are getting watched? Because sometimes I have skipped like the embedded sponsorship parts for videos. And I'm like, maybe I should just let those run because I like the content creator to get the money. But I don't know if that matters. Do you have a take on that as a YouTube creator? Yeah. So as a, as a YouTuber in your analytics, you can see, they show you like a graph of like how many people are watching. And then you can always see where people start to drop off. And usually it's within there. You have the highest amount of people watching at the very beginning. And then it just go and then it'll, you'll have a sharp decrease. And then it just slowly goes until the end. <laughs> Some videos, you might have more people watching. So that's why a lot of time, if you see YouTubers, they save stuff for the end. That's like, a, that's a strategy to keep people watching until the end of their video. And as for sponsorships, a lot of the time, unless it's an ad in a video, like it's a break and it's an actual ad break from YouTube. They won't make money from you watching the sponsorship. They'll only make money if you spend money on the thing that they're trying to sell you. But the thing the thing that's shady about YouTube is they, even if you aren't making money, if you aren't part of the ad partner program, they will still put ads on your content and you won't receive any of the money, but YouTube will. And it's only once you've reached their certain threshold that you start to make money off of it and you still you know, don't make money all of the money that they're making off of the ads. And you can choose as a creator what different type of ads you have on your video. So you can have one that plays before the beginning. You can choose to do one in the middle of a video and you can place that ad. Or uh, at the end, you can choose to have the banner video, uh, the banners that go across videos, et cetera. So like for me personally, I kind of try to treat them like a TV show. So if I have a video that's, a certain amount of length. So say I have a video that's 20 minutes, I usually will put an ad at around the 10 minute mark. And I try to arrange my script so that I kind of have a, a good cutoff point to try and draw people to watch in the little, the next little bit as well. But if, say, if I was doing a 10 minute video, I wouldn't put an ad in the middle of it because it's kind of, I treat it like a TV show. How many times do you see ads within like a half hour TV show, et cetera? Very, very interesting. Rachel, can you just talk a little bit about how your YouTubing skills have translated into your new position and like, are you mm. killing it? Like, cause it's like, <laughs> you know how it all works. Um, well, I mean, having my YouTube definitely resulted in me getting my job as a trainer and marketing person at Headland Archaeology. So it's benefited me professionally because I put it on my CV and it's one of those things that helps me stand out from a crowd of applicants. I think the fact that I'm like, Oh yeah, I have a YouTube channel. My, um, so what happened was I was working on a dig in Lincoln in England. I was there for about nine months and I was, I was full-time living in Lincoln for this dig because it's the middle of nowhere. And the uh, company, provided accommodation as a part of the job because there weren't enough archaeologists living nearby to staff this gigantic project they were on. So I was looking to try and come back to Edinburgh because my partner was here and my life was here. So I applied for this job as a training officer at Headland and I put my YouTube in my cover letter and I actually didn't end up getting the training officer job, but they offered me a next level down job, which was still a step up from what I was currently doing. And my boss who hired me said that my YouTube channel is hundred percent the thing that maybe not directly led to her hiring me, but that made her interested in me. And she was watching all of my videos with like a bunch of other people in the office. And they all thought that that was really cool. (laughs) 
And so then when I came to work for Headland, the fact that I had this social media experience was a definite benefit for them because that's something that not a lot of archaeology companies have been very good at, uh, especially the private sector ones. So I ended up directing two YouTube videos for them for a YouTube channel that they had, which were both like very well received. And at my current job, I do get asked to help out with their YouTube channel because it's something that I do in my spare time. And um, through making a couple of suggestions for the way that they structured structured things on the channel behind the scenes. So for example, um, doing things like asking people to subscribe or putting tags on your videos for the metadata in the background, making sure you fill out a description, making playlists so that things like automatically play when you finish one video, it suggests another kind of stuff have all led to like a pretty significant increase in the amount of people subscribing and watching their videos on their channel. So awesome. Thanks so much for your time today, Rachel. But we do have one more section that we uh, yes. uh, always have at the end here. The, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> the overrated, underrated section. We've gave you a brief description beforehand, but for our mm-hmm. listeners, basically we'll give you a single topic and then you can tell us if it's overrated, underrated, or accurately rated, okay. or you can also pass. And that's okay. Fine. Okay. I'll start. And I've got, a, I've got a few here. Canadian barbecue chips, but specifically when you're in the UK. Oh, they are so under underrated. I like, I live for them. <laughs> Jared will know this, but uh, I, well, my dad is a huge chip guy. He loves, he loves eating chips. And my mom always tells stories that like, as soon as my brother and I were teething, my dad was feeding us chips. And we both subsequently love it. And it's one of those comfort foods for me. So it's a hundred percent underrated because the UK has absolutely garbage barbecue crisps in uh in because they call them crisps over here they don't call them chips uh in comparison you can't get a ruffles barbecue over here and it's so sad <laughs> fair enough all right canadian expats mm, i think probably accurately rated over here it's always really interesting because well people always confuse you with being an american and you have the benefit of the fact that you speak English and you're white. So um, people aren't as prejudiced towards you as they are towards other immigrants. People often forget that you are an immigrant or they don't count you when they have those interesting conversations uh, because it is a huge conversation over here is immigration. So yeah, that'll be my answer on that. Okay. Uh, Having a good marketing team. Oh, I think that that's underrated. I think a lot of people don't think that they need marketing because marketing is something that can be really hard to demonstrate a return on. It's not like in archaeology, you know, you cost things on man hours of a project, how long you need to do this. And then you see how much money is coming into the business and what your costs are and stuff. And it's it's not the same for marketing, right? You're spending money on all these things to get your name out there. But, you know, how can you demonstrably see that you're getting a return on that investment. Um, And so as a result, people think that they don't need marketing, but then you have things happening on the other end of things where I, for example, had someone complain to me about, we've had this job advertised for ages and no one good is applying or like, (laughs) like nobody's applying for this job, et cetera. And it's like, well, if people don't know about you, how are they going to find the job? That's marketing. (laughs) Also, you know, if people are looking at the job as well, like we have to make sure that that's a job that they want to have, which in some cases is the responsibility of the company, but you also need to find a way to make it appeal to people so that they want to come work for you as well. And that is marketing uh, to an extent as well. Yeah, fair enough. All right. The proclaimers. Well, I don't know if I have a good answer for this. Accurately rated? Everybody loves... The 500 mile song, <laughs> but I don't know if everybody knows about them much beyond that, even in Scotland. But yeah. All right. Kaylee dancing. Oh, underrated as, as I'm sure you probably will now agree. It's, it's great. And actually, um, so the background to this is that I recently got married and a, a Kaylee in Scotland is like folk dancing but somebody tells you the steps to do so it's like you do a partner dance and they play a song and you do it all in order and you don't have to improv anything but one of the comments I got from quite a few people was how much they enjoyed the Kaylee especially people who hadn't done it before it's just a really great social way to socialize with people um, and try something new and have a lot of fun yeah my impression was it's kind of like square dancing here in North America yeah 
but yeah, anyway, I, I agree but better, wholeheartedly. But better. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. All right. Haggis. All right. So Haggis. Uh, I think it's overrated, uh, but I also live in Scotland. So like everyone in Scotland loves haggis and they would probably say that haggis is underrated. But as somebody who doesn't enjoy it, it's overrated for me. (laughs) Fair enough. I did try it when I was there and I did say that I liked it, but it's kind of weird. So, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Being a YouTube star. Oh, I wouldn't call myself a YouTube star, but I... I would say that that's overrated unless you're making tons of money on it. Like, you know, the top 1% of YouTubers make millions of dollars and they get to like subsidize having a really great lifestyle. And I think it probably justifies some of the things that they have to go through. But yeah, if you're not making lots of money, it's it's definitely overrated. <laughs> okay. And I, I do have a couple here. They're kind okay. of political though. So if okay. you want us to not use them, then you can okay. tell us that or whatever. All right, that's all fine, right. fine. The British royal family. Oh, again, that's something that's very dependent on where you live. Scotland, a hundred percent thinks that they're overrated. Uh, (laughs) I would say probably somewhat accurately rated for me personally. I'm not like a huge royalist fan, but as somebody who studies history for a living, I find them quite fascinating as like historical figures so to speak not which is not necessarily comment on their actions but it's more about like their effect on history yeah all right interesting take all right i've got another one here scottish independence oh underrated i like which is something i might get flack for but uh i definitely as somebody who lives in scotland and who's married to a scottish person i definitely feel the difference between down south and up here It's interesting as somebody who comes from Canada where, you know, Quebec uh, independence is, has been like a hot button topic for a very long time. Um, But I think it's a lot different in Scotland. There are a lot of reasons I think that are justified as to, as to why Scottish independence matters slash should happen. So definitely underrated. All right. Fair enough. This might be one of the reasons, but Mm -hmm. uh, Brexit. Oh, overrated i think i think a lot of people are having brexit hangover slash like regrets especially with this whole um situation that's happening uh where russia invaded ukraine and it uh, really emphasizes the importance of unity within europe also i live in scotland which overwhelmingly voted to stay within the european union but were uh, dragged out of it uh, against our will by uh everyone down south so yeah all right uh, Eric, did you have any overrated underrated? I've got a couple. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Boudica. Sorry? Boudica. Boudica. Oh, yeah. underrated. 100%. Okay. Any any historical female figure is always, always underrated. Always in comparison to male historical figures. Do we know that she was real? Like, yeah. Or is that... Okay, she, she definitely... She was a real person. Um, okay. But we only know of her from certain... Like, I'm pretty sure we only actually know of her from Roman written records, which are incredibly biased. So how much of what we know of her is is true is debatable, but the fact that she existed is definitely uh, true. Got it. Okay, two more. Okay. Sutton who? Um, accurately rated? I think it recently got a lot of press because it was the the Netflix movie, The Dig came out about that last year. So I think it's suddenly gotten a bit of uh, prominence once again, as you know, one of the most, the biggest archeological discoveries uh, of the UK or England at least. All right, and last one, the Scottish Parliament buildings. Um, accurately rated? <laughs> uh, they're very interesting actually. Uh, the two companies that I worked for were both involved in the digs for uh, the for the, the for them being built so i don't really know if i can be really unbiased about that i think they're pretty cool fair enough you should have asked me about the um the new the copper poo hotel <laughs> it's in the middle of edinburgh 100 overrated <laughs> i should have actually i don't have the name of it oh i don't I know, know what the name of it is the copper poo hotel <laughs> yeah so i don't know if eric knows about this but there's a basically there's a 
they did a new development in smack dab in the middle of Edinburgh where they tore down a shopping mall that was quite dated and past its time and they were building this brand new complex that's going to like revitalize the center of Edinburgh and it's going to have all these stores and a shopping mall it's going to make us a destination yada 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 and as a part of that they decided to build a hotel and the architect that built it his vision is that it would be kind of a it has it's like a dome sort of shape but then it has a giant copper ribbon winding around it that Mm. then like has a little twist off the top and everyone that looks at it is like it's the poop emoji they let everyone put the poop emoji in the middle of edinburgh and endanger our unesco world heritage protected skyline because some architect managed to sell the idea to them of a copper spire it's so dumb so overrated i think it's so stupid i haven't met a single person in edinburgh that thinks it's nice <laughs> yeah that was pretty bad i just want to thank you once more rachel for spending the time with us today thanks for having me i'm sorry I, i'm a huge chatter so I, I apologize if i've made this super long <laughs> no that's uh no look we'll hack and slash it if we need to so don't worry okay. about that <laughs> This has been the 15th episode of this Statistically Insignificant podcast. Thanks to Seth Kamira for our intro music, and thank you for listening. Join us again next time.